Section two of An Apology for the Life of Mistress Shamala Andrews by Connie Kieber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lesson ten Shamala Andrews to Henrietta Maria Honora Andrews. Oh, Mama, rare news! As soon as I was up this morning, a letter was brought me from the squire, of which I send you a copy. Squire Booby to Pamela. Dear creature, I hope you are not angry with me for the deceit put upon you in conveying you to Lincolnshire when you imagined yourself going to London. Indeed, my dear Pamela, I cannot live without you and will very shortly come down and convince you that my designs are better than you imagine, and such as you may with honour comply with. I am, my dear creature, your doting lover, Booby. Now, Mama, what think you? For my own part, I am convinced he will marry me, and faith so he shall. Oh, bless me! I shall be Mrs. Bobby, and be mistress of a great estate, and have a dozen coaches, and six, and a fine house at London, and another at Bath, and servants, and jewels, and plate, and go to plays, and operas, and court, and do what I will, and spend what I will. But poor Parson Williams! Well, and can't I see Parson Williams, as well after marriage as before, for I shall never care a farthing for my husband. No, hate and despise him of all things. Well, as soon as I read my letter, in came Mrs. Jukes. You see, madam, says she, I carry the marks of your passion about me, but I have received order from my master to be civil to you, and I must obey him. For he is the best man in the world, notwithstanding your treatment of him. My treatment of him, madam, says I. Yes, says she, your insensibility to the honour he intends you, of making you his mistress. I would have you to know, madam, I would not be mistress to the greatest king, no, nor lord in the universe. I value my virtue more than I do anything my master can give me. And so we talked a full hour and a half about my virtue, and I was afraid at first she had heard something about the bantling, but I find she hath not, though she is as jealous and suspicious as old Scratch. In the afternoon I stole into the garden to meet Mr. Williams. I found him at the place of his appointment, and we stayed in a kind of arbour till it was quite dark. He was very angry when I told him what Mrs. Jukes had threatened. Let him refuse me the living, says he, if he dares. I will vote for the other party, and not only so, but will expose him all over the country. I owe him one thousand five hundred and one. Indeed, but I don't care for that. By that time the election is passed, I shall be able to plead the statue of lamentations. I could have stayed with the dear man forever, but when it grew dark, he told me he was to meet a neighbouring clergy, to finish the barrel of ale they had tapped the other day, and believe they should not part till three or four in the morning. So he left me, and I promised to be patient and go on with my reading in good books. As soon as he was gone, I bethought myself what excuse I should make to Mrs. Jukes, and it came into my head to pretend as how I intended to drown myself. So I stripped over one of my petticoats, and threw it into the channel, and then I went and hid myself in the coal-hole, where I lay all night, and comforted myself with repeating over some psalms, and other good things which I had got by heart. In the morning Mrs. Jukes and all the servants were frightened out of their wits, thinking I had run away, and not devising how they should answer it to their master. They searched all the likeliest places they could think of for me, and at last saw my petticoat floating in the pond. Then they got a dragnet, imagining I was drowned, and intended to drag me out. But at last more cook coming from some coals, discovered me lying all along in no very good pickle. "'Bless me! Mrs. Pamela,' says she, "'what can be the meaning of this?' "'I don't know,' says I. "'Help me up, and I will go into breakfast, "'for indeed I am very hungry.' 
Mrs. Jukes came in immediately, and was so rejoiced to find me alive that she asked with great good humour where I had been, and how my petticoat came into the pond. I answered, I believe the devil had put it into my head to drown myself, but it was a fib, for I never saw the devil in my life, nor I don't believe he hath anything to do with me. So much for this matter. As soon as I had breakfasted, a coach and six came to the door, and who should be in it but my master? I immediately ran up into my room, and stripped, and washed, and dressed myself as well as I could, and put on my prettiest rounded cap, and pulled down my stays, to show as much as I could of my bosom, for Parson William says that it is the most beautiful part of a woman. And then I practised over all my airs before the glass, and then I sat down and read a chapter in the whole duty of man. Then Mrs. Jukes came to me and told me, my master wanted me below, and says she, don't behave like a fool. No, thinks I to myself, I believe I shall find wit enough for my master and you too. So down goes me into the parlour to him. Pamela, says he, the moment I came in, you see I cannot stay along from you, which I think is sufficient proof of the violence of my passion. Yet, sir, says I, I see your honour intends to ruin me, that nothing but the destruction of my virtue will content you. Oh, what a charming word that is, rest his soul who first invented it. How can you say that I will ruin you, answered the squire, when you shall not ask anything which I will not grant you? If that be true, says I, good your honour, let me go home to my poor but honest parents. That is all I have to ask, and do not ruin a poor maiden, who is resolved to carry her virtue to the grave with her. Hussy, says he, don't provoke me, don't provoke me, I say. You are absolutely in my power, and if you won't let me lie with you by fair means, I will by force. Oh, lost sir, says I, I don't understand your poor words. Very pretty treatment indeed, says he, to say I use poor words. Hussy, gypsy, hypocrite, saucebox, boldface, get out of my sight, or I will lend you such a kick in the... I don't care to repeat the word, but he meant my hinder part. I was offering to go away, for I was half afraid when he called me back, and took me round the neck and kissed me, and then bid me go about my business. I went directly into my room, where Mrs. Jukes came to me soon afterwards. So, madam, says she, you have left my master below in a farm pet. He has threshed two or three of his men already. It is much pretty that all his servants are to be punished for your impertinence. Hark ye, madam, says I, don't you affront me, for if you do, don't me. I am sure I have repented for using such a word, if I am not revenged. How sweet is revenge! Sure the sermon-book is in the right, in calling it the sweetest morsel the devil has ever dropped into the mouth of a sinner. Mrs. Jukes remembered the smart of my nails too well to go farther, and so we sat down and talked about my virtue till dinner-time, and then I was sent for to wait on my master. I took care to be often caught looking at him, and then I always turned away my eyes and pretended to be ashamed. As soon as the cloth was removed, he put a bumper of champagne into my hand, and bid me drink. Oh, la, I can't name the health. Parson Williams may well say he is a wicked man. Mrs. Jukes took a glass and drank to their monosyllable. I don't understand that word, but I believe it is bawdy. I then drank towards his honour's good pleasure. Ay, hussy, says he, you can give me pleasure if you will. Sir, says I, I shall be always glad to do what is in my power, and so I pretended not to know what he meant. Then he took me into his lap. Oh, mamma, I could tell you something if I would. And he kissed me. And I said I won't be slobbered about so, so I won't. And he bid me out of the room for a saucy baggage, and said he had a good mind to spit in my face. Sure no man ever took such a method to gain a woman's heart. I had not been long in my chamber before Mrs. Jukes came to me, and told me my master would not see me any more that evening, that is, if he can help it. For, added she, I easily perceive the great ascendance you have over him, and to confess the truth, I don't doubt but you will shortly be my mistress. 
"'What says I, dear Mrs. Jukes? What do you say?' "'Don't flatter a poor girl. It is impossible his honour can have any honourable design upon me.' And so we talked of honourable designs to supper-time, and Mrs. Jukes and I supped together upon a hot butter apple pie, and about ten o'clock we went to bed. We had not been abed half an hour, when my master came pinned a pat into the room in his shirt as before. I pretended not to hear him, and Mrs. Jukes laid hold of one arm, and he pulled down the bedclothes, and came into bed on the other side, and took my other arm and laid it under him, and fell a kiss on one of my breasts, as if he would have devoured it. I was then forced to awake, and began to struggle with him, Mrs. Jukes crying, Why don't you do it? I have one arm secure. If you can't deal with the rest, I am sorry for you. He was as rude as possible to me, but I remembered, Mama, the instructions you gave me to avoid being ravished, and follow them, which soon brought him to terms, and he promised me, on quitting my hold, that he would leave the bed. Oh, Parson Williams, how little are all the men in the world compared to thee! My master was as good as his word, upon which Mrs. Duke said, Oh, sir, I see you know very little of our sect, by parting so easily from the blessing when you was so near it. No, Mrs. Jukes answered he, I am very glad no more hath happened. I would not have injured Pamela for the world. And to-morrow morning perhaps she may hear of something to her advantage. This she may be certain of, that I will never take her by force. And then he left the room. What think you now, Mrs. Pamela? said Mrs. Jukes. Are you not yet persuaded my master hath honourable designs? I think he hath given no great proof of them to-night, said I. Your experience, I find, is not great, says she, but I am convinced you will shortly be my mistress, and then what will become of poor me? With such sort of discourse we both fell asleep. Next morning early my master sent for me, and after kissing me, gave me a paper into my hand, which he bid me read. I did so, and find it to be a proposal for settling two hundred a year on me, besides several other advantages offers, as presents for money and other things. Well, Pamela, said he, what answer do you make me to this? Sir, said I, I value my virtue more than all the world, and I had rather be poorest man's wife than the richest man's whore. You are a simpleton, said he. That may be, and yet I may have as much wit as some folk, cried I. Meaning me, I suppose, said he, Every man knows himself best, says I. Hussy, says he, get out of the room, and let me see your saucy face no more, for I find I am no more danger than you are, and therefore it shall be my business to avoid you as much as I can. And it shall be mine, thinks I, at every turn to throw myself in your way. So I went out, and as I parted, I heard him sigh and say he was bewitched. Mrs. Jukes hath been with me since, and she assures me she is convinced I shall shortly be mistress of the family, and she really behaves to me, as if she really thought me so. I am resolved now to aim at it. I thought once of making a little fortune by my person, and I intend to make a great one by my virtue. So asking pardon for this long scroll, I am your dutiful daughter, Shamla. Letter 11. Henrietta Maria Honora Andrews to Shamala Andrews. Dear Sham, I received your last letter with infinite pleasure, and am convinced it will be your own fault if you are not married to your master, and I would advise you now to take no less terms. But, my dear child, I am afraid of one rock only, that Parson Williams. I wish he was out of the way. A woman never commits folly but with such sort of men, as by many hints in the letters I collect him to be. But consider, my dear child, you will hereafter have opportunities sufficient to indulge yourself with Parson Williams, or any other you like. My advice, therefore, to you is that you would avoid seeing him any more till the knot is tied. Remember the first lesson I taught you, that a married woman injures only her husband, but a single woman herself. I am in hopes of seeing you a great lady. Your affectionate mother, Henrietta Maria, etc. 
The following letter appears to have been written before Shamala received the last from her mother. Letter 12. Shamla Andrews to Henrietta Maria Honora Andrews. Dear Mama, I little feared when I sent away my last that all my hopes would be so soon frustrated, but I am certain you will blame fortune and not me. To proceed then, about two hours after I had left the squire, he sent for me into the parlour. Pamela, said he, and takes me gently by the hand, will you walk with me in the garden? Yes, sir, says I, and pretended to tremble, but I hope your honour will not be rude. Indeed, says he, you have nothing to fear from me, and I have something to tell you, which, if it doth not place you, cannot offend. We walked out together, and he began thus, Pamela, will you tell me truth? Doth the resistance you make to my attempts proceed from virtue only, or have I not some rival in thy dear bosom, who might be more successful? Sir, says I, I do assure you, I never had a thought of any man in the world. How, says he, not of Parson Williams? Parson Williams, says I, is the last man upon earth, and if I was a duchess, and your honour was to make your addresses to me, you would have no reason to be jealous of any rival, especially such a fellow as Parson Williams. If ever I had a liking, I am sure. But I am not worthy of you one way, and no riches should ever bribe me the other. My dear, says he, you are worthy of everything, and suppose I should lay aside all considerations of fortune, and disregard the censure of the world, and marry you. Oh, sir, says I, I am sure you can have no such thoughts. You cannot demean yourself so low. Upon my soul, I am in earnest, says he. Oh, pardon me, sir, says I, you can't persuade me of this. How, mistress, says he, in a violent rage, do you give me the lie? Hussy, I have a great mind to box your saucy ears, but I am resolved I will never put it in your power to affront me again, and therefore I desire you to prepare yourself for your journey this instant. You deserve no better vehicle than a cart. However, for once you shall have a chariot, and it shall be ready for you within this half-hour. And so he flung from me in a fury. What a foolish thing it is for a woman to dally too long with her lover's desires! How many have owed their being old maids to their holding out too long? Mrs. Jukes came to me presently, and told me, I must make ready with all the expedition imaginable, for that my master had ordered a chariot, and that if I was not prepared to go in it, I should be turned out of doors, and left to find my way home on foot. They startled me a little, yet I resolved, whether in the right or wrong, not to submit nor ask pardon. For that you know, Mama. You never could yourself bring me to from my childhood. Besides, I thought he would be no more able to master his passion for me now than he had been hitherto, and if he sent two horses away with me, I concluded he would send four to fetch me back. So, truly, I resolved to brace it out, and with all the spirit I could master up, I told Mrs. Chooks I was vastly pleased with the news she brought me, that no one ever went more readily than I should, from a place where my virtue had been in continual danger. That as for my master, he might easily get those who were fit for his purpose. But, for my part, I preferred my virtue to all rakes whatever. And for his promises, and his offers to me, I don't value them a fig. Not a fig, Mrs. Jukes, and then I snapped my fingers. Mrs. Jukes went in with me, and helped me to pack up my little owl, which was soon done, being no more than two day caps, two night caps, five shifts, one sham, a hoop, a quilted petticoat, two flannel petticoats, two pair of stockings, one odd one, a pair of laced shoes, a short flowered apron, a laced neck handkerchief, one clog, and almost another, and some few books, as a full answer to a plain and true account, and say, the whole duty of man, with only the duties to one's neighbour, torn out the third volume of the atalantis venus in the cloister or the nun in her smock god's dealings with mr whitefield authors and eurydice some sermon books and two or three plays with their titles and part of the first act torn off so as soon as we had put all this into a bundle the chariot was ready and i took leave of all the servants and particularly mrs jukes who pretended, I believe, to be more sorry to part with me than she was. 
and then crying out with an air of indifference, my service to my master, when he consented to inquire after me, I flung myself into the chariot and bid Robin drive on. We had not gone far before a man on horseback, riding full speed, overtook us, and coming up to the side of the chariot, threw a letter into the window, and then departed without uttering a single syllable. I immediately knew the hand of my dear Williams, and was somewhat surprised, though I did not apprehend the contents to be so terrible, as by the following exact copy you will find them. Parson Williams to Pamela Dear Mistress Pamela, that disrespect for the clergy, which I have formerly noted to you in that villain your master, hath now broke forth in a manifest fact. I was proceeding to my neighbour Spruce's church, where I purposed to preach a funeral sermon on the death of Mr. John Gage, the exciseman, when I was met by two persons, who are, it seems, sheriff's officers, and arrested for the one hundred and fifty pounds which your master had lent me. And unless I can find bail within these few days, of which I see no likelihood, I shall be carried to jail. This accounts for my not having visited you these two days, which you might assure yourself I should not have failed, if the potestas had not been wanting. If you can by any means prevail on your master to release me, I beseech you so to do, not scrupling anything for righteousness' sake. I hear he is just arrived in this country. I have herewith sent him a letter, of which I transmit you a copy. So, with prayers for your success, I subscribe myself your affectionate friend, Arthur Williams. Parson Williams to Squire Booby Honoured sir, I am justly surprised to feel so heavy a weight of your displeasure, without being conscious of the least demerit towards so good and generous a patron as I have ever found you. For my own part I can truly say, Nil conscire sibi nullae palescere culpae. And therefore, as this proceeding is so contrary to your usual goodness, which I have often experienced, and more especially in the loan of this money for which I am now arrested, I cannot avoid thinking some malicious persons have insinuated false suggestions against me intending thereby to eradicate those seeds of affection which i have hardly travailed to sow in your heart and which promised to produce such excellent fruit if i have any ways offended you sir be graciously pleased to let me know it and likewise to point out to me the means whereby I may reinstate myself in your favour. For next to him whom the great themselves must bow down before, I know none to whom I shall bend with more lowliness than your honour. Permit me to subscribe myself, Honoured sir, your most obedient and most obliged and most dutiful humble servant, Arthur Williams. The fight of poor Mr. Williams shocked me more than my own, for, as the beggar's opera says, nothing moves one so much as a great man in distress, and to see a man of his learning forced to submit so low to one whom I have often heard him say he despises, is, I think, a most affecting circumstance. I write all this to you, dear mamma, at the inn where I lie this first night, and as I shall send it immediately, by the post, it will be in town a little before me. Don't let my coming away vex you, for as my master will be in town in a few days, I shall have an opportunity of seeing him, 
and let the worst come to the worst, I shall be sure of my settlement at last, which is all from your dutiful daughter, Shamala. P.S. Just as I was going to send this away, a letter is come from my master, desiring me to return with a large number of promises. I have him now as sure as a gun, as you will perceive by the letter itself, which I have enclosed to you. This letter is unhappily lost, as well as the next which Shamala wrote, and which contained an account of all the proceedings previous to her marriage. The only remaining one which I could preserve seems to have been written about a week after the ceremony was performed, and is as follows. Shamala Booby to Henrietta Maria Honora Andrews Madam, in my last I left off at our sitting down to supper in our wedding night, where I behaved with as much bashfulness as the purest virgin in the world could have done. The most difficult task for me was to blush. However, by holding my breath and squeezing my cheeks with my handkerchief, I did pretty well. My husband was extremely eager and impatient to have supper removed, after which he gave me leave to retire into my closet for a quarter of an hour, which was very agreeable to me, for I implored that time in writing to Mr. Williams, who— as I informed you in my last, is released, and presented to the living upon the death of the last parson. Well, at last I went to bed, and my husband soon leaped in after me, where, I shall only assure you, I acted my part in such a manner that no bridegroom was ever better satisfied with his bride's virginity. And to confess the truth, I might have been well enough satisfied too, if I had never been acquainted with Parson Williams.' Oh, what regard men who marry widows should have to the qualifications of their former husbands. We did not rise the next morning till eleven, and then we sat down to breakfast. I ate two slices of bread and butter, and drank three dishes of tea, with a good deal of sugar, and we both looked very silly. After breakfast we dressed ourselves, he in a blue camlet coat, very richly laced, and breeches of the same, with a padua foy waistcoat, laced with silver, and I in one of my mistress's gowns. I will have finer when I come to town. We then took a walk in the garden, and he kissed me several times, and made me a present of hundred guineas, which I gave away before night to the servants, twenty to one and ten to another, and so on. We ate a very hearty dinner, and about eight in the evening went to bed again. He is prodigiously found on me, but I don't like him half so well as my dear William's. The next morning we rose earlier, and I asked him for another hundred guineas, and he gave them me. I sent fifty to Parson Williams, and the rest I gave away, two guineas to a beggar, and three to a man riding along the road, and the rest to other people. I longed to be in London that I may have the opportunity of laying some out, as well as giving away. I believe I shall buy everything I see. What signifies having money if one doth not spend it? The next day, as soon as I was up, I asked him for another hundred. Well, my dear, says he, I don't grudge you anything, but how is it possible for you to lay out the other two hundred here? La, sir, says I, I hope I am not obliged to give you an account of every shilling. Troth, that will be being your servant still. I assure you, I married you with no such view. Besides, did you not tell me I should be mistress of your estate? And I will be, too. "'for though I brought no fortune, I am as much your wife as if I had brought a million. "'Yes, but my dear,' says he, "'if you had brought a million, you would spend it all at this rate. "'Besides, what will your expenses be in London, if they are so great here?' "'Truly,' says I, sir, I shall live like other ladies of my fashion. "'And if you think, because I was a servant, "'that I shall be contented to be governed as you please, "'I will show you you are mistaken.' "'If you had not cared to marry me, you might have let it alone. "'I did not ask you, nor I did not court you. "'Madam,' says he, "'I don't value a hundred guineas to oblige you, "'but this is a spirit which I did not expect in you, "'nor did I ever see any symptoms of it before. "'Oh, but times are altered now. "'I am your lady, sir. "'Yes, to my sorrow, says he, I am afraid. "'And I am afraid to my sorrow, too, "'for if you begin to use me in this manner already,' I reckon you will beat me before a month's at an end. For I am sure if you did, it would injure me less than this barbarous treatment, upon which I burst into tears and pretended to fall into a fit. This frightened him out of his wits, and he called up the servants. 
Mrs. Jukes immediately came in, and she and another of the mites fell heartily to rubbing my temples and holding smelling bottles to my nose. Mrs. Jukes told him she'd fear I should never recover, upon which he began to beat his breasts and cried out, Oh, my dearest angel, curse on my passionate temper. I have destroyed her, I have destroyed her. Would she had spent my whole estate rather than this had happened? Speak to me, my love. I will melt myself into gold for thy pleasure. At last, having pretty well tired myself with counterfeiting, and imagining I had continued long enough for my purpose in the sham fit, I began to move my eyes, to loosen my teeth, and to open my hands, which Mr. Booby no sooner perceived than he embraced and kissed me with the eagerest ecstasy, asked my pardon on his knees for what I had suffered through his folly and perseverance, and without more questions fetched me the money. I fancy I have effectually prevented any farther refusals or inquiry about my expenses. It would be hard indeed that a woman who marries a man only for his money should be debarred from spending it. Well, after all things were quiet, we sat down to breakfast, yet I resolved not to smile once, nor to say one good nightshirt or good-humoured word on any account. Nothing can be more prudent in a wife than a sullen backwardness to reconciliation. It makes a husband fearful of offending by the length of his punishment. When we were dressed, the coach was by my desire ordered for an airing, which we took in it. A long silence prevailed on both sides, though he constantly squeezed my hand, and kissed me, and used all the familiarities which I peevishly permitted. At last I opened my mouth first. And so, says I, you are sorry you are married. Pray, my dear, says he, forget what I said in a passion. Passion, says I, is apter to discover our thoughts than to teach us to counterfeit. Well, says he, whether you will believe me or not, I solemnly vow I would not change thee for the richest woman in the universe. No, I warrant you, says I, and yet you could refuse me a nasty hundred pound. At these very words I saw Mr. Williams riding as fast as he could across the field, and I looked out and saw a lease of greyhounds cursing a hare, which they presently killed, and I saw him alight and take her from them. My husband ordered Robin to drive towards him, and looked horribly out of humour, which I presently imputed to jealousy. So I began with him first, for that is the wisest way. Last, sir, says I, what makes you look so angry and grim? Doth the sight of Mr. Williams give you all this uneasiness? I am sure I would never have married a woman of whom I had so bad an opinion, that I must be uneasy at every fellow she looks at. My dear, answered he, you injure me extremely. You was not in my thoughts, nor indeed could be, while they were covered by so morose a countenance. I am justly angry with that parson, whose family hath been raised from the dunghill by us, and who hath received from me twenty kindnesses, and yet is not contented to destroy the game in all other places, which I freely give him leave to do, but hath the impudence to pursue a few hairs, which I am desirous to preserve, round about this little coppice. Look, my dear, pray look, says he, I believe he's going to turn Higgler. To confess the truth, he had no less than three tied up behind his horse, and a fourth he held in his hand. Pshaw, says I, I wish all the hares in the country were dead. The parson himself chid me afterwards for using the word, though it was in his service. Here's a fuss, indeed, about a nasty little pitiful creature that is not half so useful as a cat. You shall not persuade me that a man of your understanding would quarrel with a clergyman for such a trifle. No, no, I am the hare for whom poor Parson Williams is persecuted, and jealousy is the motive. If you had married one of your quality ladies, she would have had lovers by dozens. She would so, but because you have taken a servant-maid, forsooth, you are jealous if she'll but looks. And then I began to watch her, as a poor pa 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 parson in his pu pulpit, and then out burst a flood of tears. My dear, said he, for heaven's sake dry your eyes, and don't let him be a witness of your tears, which I should be sorry to think might be imputed to my unkindness. I've already given you some proof that I am not jealous of this parson. I will now give you a very strong one, for I will mount my horse, and you shall take Williams into the coach. You may be sure that this motion pleased me, that I pretended to make as light of it as possible, 
and told him I was sorry his behaviour had made some such glaring instance necessary to the perfect clearing my character. He soon came up to Mr. Williams, who had attempted to ride off, but was prevented by one of our horsemen, whom my husband sent to stop him. When we met, my husband asked him how he did with a very good-humoured air, and told him he perceived he had found good spot that morning. He answered pretty moderate, sir, for that he had found three hairs tied on to the saddle dead in a ditch, winking on me at the same time, and added he was sorry there was such a rot among them. Well, says Mr. Booby, if you please, Mr. Williams, you shall come in and ride with my wife. For my own part, I will mount on horseback, for it is fine weather, and besides, it does not become me to loll in a chariot, whilst the clergyman rides on horseback. At which words Mr. Booby leapt out, and Mr. Williams leapt in, in an instant, telling my husband as he mounted he was glad to see such a reformation, and that if he continued his respect to the clergy, he might assure himself a blessing from above. It was now that the airing began to grow pleasant to me. Mr. Williams, who never had but one fault, with that he generally smelled of tobacco, was now perfectly sweet, for he had for two days together enjoined himself as a penance, not to smoke till he had kissed my lips. I will loosen you from that obligation, says I, and, observing my husband looking another way, I gave him a charming kiss, and then he asked me questions concerning my wedding night. This actually made me blush. I wow I did not think it had been in him. As he went along, he began to discourse very learnedly, and told me the flesh and the spirit were two distinct matters, which had not the least relation to each other. That all immaterial substances, those were his very words, such as love, desire, and so forth, were guided by the spirit, but fine houses, large estates, coaches, and dainty entertainments were the product of the flesh. Therefore, says he, my dear, you have two husbands, one of the object of your love, and to satisfy your desire, the other the object of your necessity, and to furnish you with those good conveniences. I am sure I remember every word, for he repeated it three times. Oh, he is very good whenever I desire him to repeat a thing to me three times, he always does it. As then the spirit is preferable to the flesh, so I am preferable to your other husband, to which I am incident in time likewise. I say these things, my dear, said he, to satisfy your conscience. A fig for my conscience, said I. When shall I meet you again in the garden? My husband now rode up to the chariot, and asked us how we did. I hate the sight of him. Mr. Williams answered very well, at your service. Then they talked of the weather, and other things. I wished him gone again, every minute, but all in vain I had no more opportunity of conversing with Mr. Williams. Well, at dinner Mr. Booby was very civil to Mr. Williams, and told him he was sorry for what had happened, and would make him a sufficient amends, if in his power, and desired him to accept of a note of fifty pounds, which he was so good to receive, notwithstanding all that had passed, and told Mr. Booby he hoped he would be forgiven, and that he would pray for him. We make a charming fool of him, E. Fackins. Times are finally altered. I have entirely got the better of him, and I am resolved to never give him his humour. Oh, how foolish it is in a woman, who hath once got the reins into her own hand, ever to quit him again. After dinner, Mr. Williams drank the church, etc., and smiled on me. When my husband's turn came, he drank, etc., and the church, for which he was very severely rebuked by Mr. Williams, it being a high crime, it seemed, to name anything before the church. I do not know what etc. is, but I believe it is something concerning choosing Parliament men. For I asked if it was not the health to Mr. Booby's borough, and Mr. Williams, with a hearty laugh, answered, Yes, yes, it is his borough we mean. I slipped out as soon as I could, hoping Mr. Williams would finish the squire, as I have heard him say he could easily do, and come to me. But it happened quite otherwise, for in about half an hour Booby came to me, and told me he had left Mr. Williams, the mayor of his borough, and two or three aldermen heartily at it, and asked me if I would go hear Williams sing a catch, which, added he, he doth to a miracle. Every opportunity of seeing my dear Williams was agreeable to me, which indeed I scarce had at this time, for when he returned, the whole corporation were got together, and the room was in a cloud of tobacco. Parson Williams was at the upper end of the table, and he had pure round cherry cheeks, and his face looked all the world to nothing like the sun in a fog. 
If the son had a pipe in his mouth, there would be no difference. I began not to grow uneasy, apprehending I should have no more of Mr. Williams' company that evening, and not at all caring for my husband, I advised him to sit down and drink for his country with the rest of the company, but he refused, and desired me to give him some tea, swearing nothing made him so sick as to hear a parcel of scoundrels roaring forth at the principle of honest men over their cups, when, says he, I know most of them are such empty blockheads, that they don't know their right hand from the left. And that fellow there, who has talked so much of shaping at the left side of the parson, in whom they all place a confidence, if I don't take care, will sell them to my adversary. I don't know why I mentioned it stuff to you, for I am sure I know nothing about politics, more than Parson Williams tells me. Who says that the court side are in the right aunt, and every Christian ought to be on the same side with the bishop? When we had finished our tea, we walked in the garden till it was dark, and then my husband proposed, instead of returning to the company, which I desired that I might see Parson Williams again, to sup in another room by ourselves, which, for fear of making him jealous, and considering too that Parson Williams would be pretty far gone, I was obliged to consent to. Oh, what a devilish thing it is for a woman to be obliged to go to bed to a spindle-shanked young squire she does not like when there is a jolly parson in the same house she is fond of. In the morning I grew very peevish, and in a dumps, notwithstanding all he could say or do to please me. I exclaimed against the privilege of husbands, and vowed I would not be pulled and trumbled about. At last he hit on the only method, which would have brought me into humour, and proposed to me a journey to London within a few days. This you might easily guess pleased me, for besides the desire I have of showing myself forth, of buying fine clothes, jewels, coaches, houses, and ten thousand other fine things, Parson Williams is, it seems, going thither too, to be instituted. Oh, what a charming journey I shall have, for I hope to keep the dear man in the chariot with me all the way, and that foolish booby, for that is the name Mr. Williams hath set him, will ride on horseback. So as I shall have an opportunity of seeing you so shortly, I think I will mention no more matters to you now. Oh, I had like to have forgot one very material thing, which is that it will look horribly for a lady of my quality and fashion to own such a woman as you for my mother. Therefore we must meet in private only, and if you will never claim me, nor mention me to any one, I will always allow you what is very handsome. Parson William hath greatly advanced me in this, and says he thinks I should do very well to lay out twenty pounds, and set you up in a little chandler's shop. But you must remember all my favours to you will depend on your secrecy, for I am positively resolved. I will not be known to be your daughter, and if you tell any one so, I shall deny it with all my might which Parson Williams says I may do with a safe conscience, being now a married woman. So I rest. Your humble servant, Shamala. P.S. The strangest fancy hath entered into my Bobby's head that can be imagined. He is resolved to have a book made about him and me. He proposed it to Mr. Williams, and offered him a reward for his pints, but he says he never wrote anything of that kind, but will recommend my husband when he comes to town, to a parson who does that sort of business for folks, one who can make my husband, and me, and Parson Williams, to be all great people, for he can make black white, it seems. Well, but they say my name is to be altered. Mr. Williams says the first syllable hath too comical a sound. So it is to be changed to Pamela. I own I can't imagine what can be said, for to be sure I shan't confess any of my secrets to them, and so I whispered Parson Williams about that, who answered me, I need not give myself any trouble, for the gentleman who writes lives never asked more than a few names of his customers, and that he made all the rest out of his own head. You mistake, child, said he, if you apprehend any truths are to be delivered. So far, on the contrary, if you had not been acquainted with the name, you would not have known it to be your own history. I have seen a piece of his performance, where the persons whose life was written, could he have risen from the dead again, would not have even suspected that he had been aimed at, unless but the title of the book, which was subscribed with his name. Well, all these matters are strange to me, yet I can't help laughing, to think I shall see myself in a printed book. So much for Mrs. Shamala, 
or Pamela, which I have taken pains to transcribe from the originals sent down by her mother in a rage at the proposal in her last letter. The originals themselves are in my hands, and shall be communicated to you if you think proper to make them public, and certainly they will have their use. The character of Shamala will make young gentlemen wary how they take the most fatal step both to themselves and families by youthful, hasty, and improper matches. Indeed, they may assure themselves that all such prospects of happiness are vain and delusive, and that they sacrifice all the solid comforts of their lives to a very transient satisfaction of a passion, which, how hot soever it be, will be soon cooled, and when cooled will afford them nothing but repentance. Can anything be more miserable than to be despised by the whole world, and that must certainly be the consequence, to be despised by the person obliged, which it is more than probable will be the consequence? and of which we see an instance in Shamala, and lastly to despise oneself, which must be the result of any reflection on so weak and unworthy a choice. As to the character of Parson Williams, I am sorry it is a true one. Indeed, those who do not know him will hardly believe it so, but what scandal doth it throw on the order to have one bad member unless they endeavour to screen and protect him? in him you see a picture of almost every vice exposed in nauseous and odious colours and if a clergyman would ask me by what pattern he should form himself i would say be the reverse of williams so far therefore he may be of use to the clergy themselves and though god forbid there should be many williamses among them you and i are too honest to pretend that the body wants no reformation to say the truth i think no greater instance of the contrary can be given than that which appears in your letter the confederating to cry up a nonsensical ridiculous book i believe the most extensively so of any ever yet published and to be so weak and so wicked as to pretend to make it a matter of religion whereas so far from having any moral tendency the book is by no means innocent for first there are many lascivious images in it very improper to be laid before the youth of either sex secondly young gentlemen are here taught that to marry their mother's chambermaids and to indulge the passion of lust at the expense of reason and common sense is an act of religion virtue and honour and indeed the surest road to happiness thirdly old chambermaids are strictly enjoined to look out after their masters they are taught to use little arts to that purpose and lastly are countenanced in impertinence to their superiors and in betraying the secrets of families fourthly in the character of mrs jukes vice is rewarded whence every housekeeper may learn the usefulness of pimping and boarding for her master fifthly in parson williams who is represented as a faultless character we see a busy fellow intermeddling with the private affairs of his patron whom he is very ungratefully forward to expose and condemn on every occasion many more objections might if i had time or inclination to be made to this book but i apprehend what hath been said is sufficient to persuade you of the use which may arise from publishing an antidote to this poison i have therefore sent you the copies of these papers and if you have leisure to communicate them to the press i will transmit you the originals though i assure you the copies are exact i shall only add that there is not the least foundation for anything which is said of lady darvers or any of the other ladies all that is merely to be imputed to the invention of the biographer i have particularly inquired after lady darvers and don't hear mr booby hath such a relation or that there is indeed any such person existing i am dear sir most faithfully and respectfully your humble servant j oliver parson tickle text to parson oliver dear sir i have read over the history of shamala as it appears in those authentic copies you favoured me with and am very ashamed of the character which i was hastily prevailed on to give that book 
i am equally angry with the pert jade herself and with the author of her life for i scarce know yet to whom i chiefly owe my imposition which hath been so general that if numbers could defend me from shame i should have no reason to apprehend it as i have your implied leave to publish what you so kindly sent me i shall not wait for the originals as you assure me the copies are exact and as i am really impatient to do what i think a serviceable act of justice to the world finding by the end of her letter that the little hussy was in town i made it pretty much my business to inquire after her but with no effect hitherto as soon as i succeed in this inquiry you shall hear what discoveries i can learn you will pardon the shortness of this letter as you shall be troubled with a much longer very soon and believe me dear sir your most faithful servant thomas ticklext p s since i writ i have a certain account that mr booby hath caught his wife in bed with williams hath turned her off and is prosecuting him in the spiritual court end of an apology for the life of mistress shamala andrews by connie kieber narrator read by patty cunningham connie kieber read by noel badrian john puff read by bob gonzalez thomas ticklext read by chuck williamson parson j oliver read by algy pug Shamala, read by Christine G. Henrietta Maria Honora Andrews, read by Margaret Espayat. Mrs. Lucretia Jervis, read by April Gonzalez. Parson Arthur Williams, read by Martin Geeson. Booby, read by Hermann Hoskins.